month we're going to take a break from covering franchises and we are getting spirit of the season by tackling a handful of one-off ho-ho holiday and christmas horror movies to end the year and to kick things off we're going to start with what might be one of the most divisive titles we've ever covered in the history of the show the 2016 home invasion in quotation marks black comedy Better watch out. However, I'm not alone under the mistletoe. I am joined by two of our regular co-hosts. Up first from the Spectre Cinema Club, we have Mr. Devon Taylor. Devon, how are we doing this afternoon? Bah humbug. I hate Christmas, but I love this podcast and I love this movie. So uh, very uh, excited to share some space under the mistletoe with you guys this morning. Well, thanks, Ebenezer. Thank you for joining us. Pleasure to have you on. There's more of gravy than the grave of you, I guess, as one would have it. Usually. Um, usually. usually. And also with us from the Bodies of Horror podcast. Uh, welcome back, Mr. Cole Goble. Nicole, how are we? I'm feeling very tiny Tim in Okay in my moment right now no i'm very excited to talk about this film um it is a ride a wild a wild interesting ride i think i may have almost (laughs) lost a friendship over Mm -hmm. this film okay well we don't want that we definitely don't want to lose any friendships over a movie but we do have one more person Joining us today, we're happy to welcome a first-time guest to the show. He's a longtime organizer of the Boston Horror Society, which is a local meetup group for folks to get together for local, well, at least like local for me, horror events, Mr. Jason LeBlanc. Jason, welcome to the show. Mike, glad to be on the show. Um, It must be like a holiday miracle because I'm finally on. (laughs) Thanks for, yeah, thanks for coming on, man. You know, you reached out and we were like... You guys can't see Jason brought his uh, Christmas sweater and everything for today. Yep. He's ready. Got aliens. Is that Michael Myers in the middle? Oh, no. So <laughs> it's perfect that I wore this for a podcast so I can describe mm-hmm. it. Um, yeah, there's aliens on it. There's Sasquatch. There's um, the abominable snowman. And finally, there's Nessie at the bottom. Excellent. Yeah. So I have Excellent. my cryptids sweater on for the Santa Claus is totally a cryptid so so that tracks <laughs> he is a cryptid how else what how else would you explain any of this he's got to be a cryptid how he's like a he's like a like long he's like a 
angel that got turned into a cryptid and now he is he he got saddled with some curse to where now once a year he has to deliver all these presents to all these people around the world like i mean that sounds awful so that's it's either a curse or or uh, or, or a ruse one of the two where is this version of the santa claus because sign me up Sign me up. I feel like this is already derailed. I feel like <laughs> we've already gone so far. Okay. Well, maybe when we get to Krampus, we'll have to dig a bit more into Santa exactly. as a cryptid. So exactly. I think, Devon, I think you're on for I think I'm stepping aside for that episode. So uh, we'll definitely, I'm looking forward to hearing that. Um, all right. Before we kind of jump into how this one got made, let's talk about our initial impressions of Better Watch Out. And here's where we're going to give just like a really brief rundown of where we might have first caught this one uh, and maybe the impact it left on us during our first viewing. And Jason, as our guest, do you mind kicking things off for us? Like, what were your first thoughts on Better Watch Out and when did you first see it? Okay, sure. So uh, the first time I ever watched Better Watch Out was, unfortunately, it was during 2020. Um, so at the time, you couldn't really go out and do much. And it kind of put a damper on things with my meetup group, because the whole point of like what we do is getting together and meeting in person and socializing. So because the pandemic was um, going on, what we ended up doing was a series of Skype chats. So um, we would do it this way where we would have a couple of movies in advance where we would watch them uh, that usually have a theme like that maybe a week where we're doing vampires or a week we're doing cryptids or maybe a week that we're doing holiday movies. Um, so we decided to do a couple of Christmas horror films, uh, one of them which was Better Watch Out. Um, so we would log on after had, having previously watched the movies earlier and then chat about it and um, also catch up with each other. Well, was going on in our lives. Um, having seen the movie, so this was a rewatch for me, uh, both my initial reaction and this rewatch, it's um, it's it's a dark comedy. Uh, it has a lot, goes through a lot of twists and turns you're not really expecting on first watch. Um, I think that there's some things towards the end which I wish were different. Um, but otherwise, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a really underrated, uh, Christmas horror movie that I think more people uh, should discover. Excellent. Nicole, how about yourself? So I think my first viewing of this would have been, it would have been 2019. Um, it was the first time I had gone home for the holidays in quite a while. And I decided to give the gift that keeps on giving, which is making my niece watch a lot of holiday horror, which she had no interest in. But I was visiting, and you always do what the visiting guest wishes. So we watched this, and I... It was... I always like to have, like, conversations after watching a film and I was not like, during I the movie no okay. and it's like what how how okay so let's talk about toxic masculinity let's talk about how putrid these characters are and 
yeah, it was it was very interesting. But um, yeah, um, I I think heard a little bit about it uh, previously because I know that it had hit some of the best um, rotation. I think Fantastic Fest is where it's got its main premiere. And I remember hearing Spring Queens about it. So I was very intrigued. I'm a huge, 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 huge fan of the visit. And so that really piqued my interest in, in checking this out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Devon, yourself? Yeah, this one uh, kind of has a little special place in my heart. Uh, this was whenever I was... Um, I first starting to review things and this was like one of the like first like early screeners I got and everything and uh, reviewing this was how I got connected with the director uh, who I got to have on season one of Spectre Cinema Club uh, talking about the film and uh, yeah so like uh, from from the get-go it's just kind of one of those movies that like you know I love me a good uh, tonal shift you know like a very jarring one it was like one that I was lucky enough to like, you know, go in pretty blind and then, you know, was able to kind of get the the full ride and experience of it. Cause that's what it is for me. It's like, I come back to this every year because it's, it's, it's mischievous fun, uh, but also nasty. And also, you know, like, you know, still has like, you know, really good bits of, um, you know, underlying social cringe horror in it. But at the same time, it's it's also just a, a fun, you know, movie. This is a fun one that I like to show people who haven't seen it to like watch their reactions. You know, it's kind of one of those movies for me. Um, me and my sisters watch this movie almost every year together because I remember showing them and they fell in love with it. Um, so, yeah. So so this has been a, a yearly watch for me. And uh, and yeah, I, I think um it you know functions very well the first time for that initial experience but i think it does um still hold up really well on rewatches because it's one of the ones you can look for the little details that like kind of you know play at the twist and things like that um so so i still get something out of it every time i watch it yeah and it's funny because you say you're the christmas cynic like you're the person amongst the crew that like doesn't really like christmas so much and there's well, no it, need for this to be a Christmas movie. Exactly. Right? This like, is a Christmas adjacent movie. So like, it's not hitting me over the head with the Christmas mm-hmm. stuff, but like, you know, even though I don't like Christmas, the holiday, I still like Christmas aesthetic. I still like Christmas lights and snow and candy canes. Like it's cool imagery. Right. I still like that stuff. Um, right. So yeah, this film doesn't even need to be a Christmas movie, but it is, you know, in its own way. So yeah. But there's that cynical part of me that says like the reason this is set as Christmas is because like every year, you know, come December, you know, you're going to have like sites that are thirsting for content. And they're going to say like 10 Christmas or holiday horror movies that you can watch this Christmas season when you're tired of like silent night, deadly night, you know, the usual fare. And this is one inevitably that's going to pop up on like a lot of lists uh, just because like you threw in some snow and you threw in like some Christmas music and some Christmas sweaters and some carolers, even though like literally they have nothing like Christmas is like factors in like in no way, shape or form to the plot at all. So there's like that cynical part of me as well that says like, good for you guys for like knowing that like you'll be able to kind of market this movie. It'll have more of a lasting impact, but just by kind of like adding that to the mix as well. I do think that there is something interesting though about setting it 
during the holidays where the holidays are really more of the background because of the treatment of kids in the film mm-hmm. and talking about entitlement and kind of a spoiled nature of a child and how woobifying the parents are. Um, I think also plays into like this very different kind of Christmas idea. Okay. So just something like off the beaten path a little bit, a little bit different. God. And I think it this is a nice one too to kind of be in the mix of you know the the holiday movies where a lot of them will kind of go to you know straight to slashers typically it's either mm-hmm. slashers or a play on a you know a, a dark play on like a Christmas thing you know mm-hmm. so I like that we have this one to kind of throw in the mix of you know just like a fun you know kind of inverted home vision movie um you know that plays you know differently than you know just like a typical oh let me watch somebody in a Santa suit you know kill people with a sharpened candy cane you know sure although you know that has its charms as well which is still great think, yeah which but is still the variety is nice yeah that's true to each their own so for me, like this, this played uh, Telluride Horror back in 2016. And it was like the closing movie And it, back when it was called Safe Neighborhood. It was like one of our secret screenings, like for the one year that we had secret screenings. It basically meant like we were too small to still like book the movie and promote it, um, but big enough for us to kind of land it and say, just don't tell anybody about it. Uh, it played opposite uh, against the autopsy of Jane Doe, uh, which was another secret screening for us. And I chose to intro this movie because I kind of didn't know much about it, except that I heard that it was like really funny. So I'm a sucker for horror comedies. I'm like, this is what I'll go for. Um, and I won't lie, like I really enjoyed it the first time around. And the two twists, like first, like that, you know, Luke and Garrett set up this home invasion and then the bigger one when like Luke punches Ashley and sends her like flying down those steps. Like it felt like the rare instance when like anything could happen in a movie, you know? And I was like totally on board for that. Like it felt like, okay, like I don't know where this movie is going to go at this point, but everything seems like it's going to be on the table. Um, like the most recent example of that is like, I don't know if you guys have seen the coffee table, you know, that's playing the festival circuit. Um, that is one, like I introduced that this year. It's like the feel bad movie of the festival. And it really is like when you watch that movie, you're like, I feel horrible about laughing at things in this movie. Like it says a lot about me and what a horrible human being I am that I find this stuff funny and disturbing. Um, the more I watch this movie, the harder it is because the tone of this movie like the lighthearted, jovial kind of comedy of it and like what you actually watch on screen don't line up. Like it's going for like a light comic touch. It's kind of like satirized, like the 80s, like John Hughes and Christopher Columbus movies where everything is like super light and breezy, but it's a really dark story. And Luke is a really despicable antagonist that doesn't get, that true kind of comeuppance at the end and it makes it harder to get through it. And, you know, I think we might get a little Freudian when we talk about this one as well, when we get into the movie discussion. So should be interesting as we go on here, but before we 
talk about the movie proper. Let's talk about how it got made. And Devon, like you spoke with uh, the director, Chris Peckover, and you've got some background information. So do you want to kick, take it away for a bit? Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. So this was directed uh, by Chris Peckover and this was um, a screenplay by Zach Kahn. Um, it, it was kind of brought to Peckover uh, as a finished script already um, and was brought to him. He had done a film called Undocumented. It's a found footage movie about, um, you know, kind of a horror taking place on the borders, uh, Mexican borders. And it's kind of a nasty movie. Um, I haven't seen it, but like, you know, uh, but this was, you know, they saw this and the original script for this was supposed to be um, a, a little bit darker. It was uh, kind of, de- he, he described himself, it was like kind of more uh, torture porn, early 2000s-esque in, in kind of the vibes and was, you know, going to be like much, much darker. Um, uh, but then um, he ended up kind of wanting to take it and have a little bit more fun with it um, in the original script the the main twist of the film came later so like it kind of was a completely different film in the way that he moved up the the twist for this and uh and what i found fascinating is uh he he said he was going for a john hughes movie that was jacked by tarantino um so curious uh, did you guys feel that in the tone at all yeah i think especially later in the film there are certain moments um where he's trying to convey something but you hear like these little cracks in the voice that kind of I think it's both speaking to this is someone that's a kid but also this is a kid that's hiding something and um, yeah I did notice that especially in my most recent watch because I think you had put something in the notes and so I was trying to be like let me be very diligent and see if I can find these little speckles um, in the film. So I think it's actually quite like, especially towards the end, very disturbing. Yeah. I mean, I think it is, I think, you know, for me personally, there's an inherent corniness to, to John Hughes films that you, that you embrace. Uh, so I kind of, uh, I definitely feel that uh, to a degree in, uh, in, in that, but um yeah, so um, so I got to talk to him. Um, it was like basically I got was like telling my thoughts about the movie, and then he would like kind of provide some like background context. So I'm not gonna regurgitate regurgitate the whole thing, but throughout the episode, I'll try to slip some stuff in. Um, uh, like uh, one of them, Levi Miller, was like in like prime puberty while filming this. Um, so uh, the voice cracks for him were uh, kind of integrated into the performance and. Miller was like kind of nervous and he's like, oh, I'm so sorry. My voice wasn't cracking when I auditioned and like, I'm, I'm so sorry. And then he's like, no, let's use this. And, you know, so he kind of integrated that in. Um, and that also kind of came into play later whenever they needed to do some pickup shots, like only like a month or so later. But then Miller had grown like two inches in the time. Um, and so they had to like kind of, um, you know, come up with some creative stuff for, for continuity. Um and uh, yeah, so um, and he um, uh, one little fun fact about this was, um, you know, uh, of course, it's always hard to get rights to Christmas movies um, and they wanted to get uh, one of Wham's versions. Of, I think of maybe it was uh, All I Want for Christmas or whichever um, Christmas song that Wham did. I think did. it's Last Christmas. Last Christmas. Last yes. Christmas, I gave you my heart the very yes. next day you gave it away. Yeah, that that was sing supposed it. to that was Can supposed you sing to sing that for us. Can someone care to sing a few bars right now? Oh no. 
Oh no, you're not going to do a little holiday karaoke. You know, it's early morning for me, Mike. My voice is my voice doesn't get warmed up until the end of the episode. (laughs) You don't want Uh the podcast to get too scary. We don't want. Okay, fine. (laughs) You know. Yeah, but um, and it got cleared by like almost everyone except for George Michaels. And when he read the scene that the song was going to be in, this was uh, the like the baseball bat scene that he's like singing into it. Um, and he said, no, I do not want my song associated with this movie. So, um, yeah, George Michaels for you. <laughs> what is the dance too? like the dance that <laughs> Levi Miller does after he hits Ricky? It like pantomimes like a 80s movie scene and i can't think of what scene that movie is from but it's a very specific reference to an 80s movie and now i can't think about which movie it's from he said they were going for like a gene kelly like kind of moment was apparently the the, the kind of what what they were going for with it so singing in the rain or you know what it was it was um from singing in the rain but it's alex in in it's Alex in oh yeah, the Clockwork Orange, Clockwork Orange is yeah. what he was going for. Well, like he was very specifically going for that moment. And if you're thinking of '80s films, are you thinking of like Ducky's dance? No, Pretty I was wrong pink? about saying '80s film because okay. Clockwork Orange is very much not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, this was an Australian production. Um, uh, Peckover is a Canadian and Australian, but he, he lives in Canada. But then apparently when they heard his mom was Australian, that's when he got uh, some bonus bucks to, to film this in Australia. And, you know, they got the, the tax incentives there. Um, but that also helped him land his cast, which is, you know, we have a predominantly uh, Australian cast. Um, and uh, Olivia DeJong and Ed Oxenbold had uh, worked together on The Visit, also a big fan as well. Um, so they already had a nice like kind of rapport going um, and then bringing in people like Levi Miller and then Dacre Montgomery coming in later as well, like right before he was cast in Power Rangers. So he kind of uh, hit a little sweet spot of these like uh, young Australian actors. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you get to see that chemistry, too, with the young and Oxenbold, like they work really get well together in any scenes that they share. Like the visit is great. Like that was the big m night like comeback movie after he i think he had produced the devil which is that the dowdle brothers like after the poughkeepsie tapes was that their film after that and then so he had produced that and then had done the visit which was him kind of going back to like smaller more self-contained movies and i remember that one like it's been years since i've watched it but i remember that one like really working for me and i remember both of them being great in it yeah, they, they were really, really, really good. And it's kind of crazy that the visit was only a couple of years. But again, like seeing how kids age like Dijon, mm-hmm. like ages like so much, like in between just those two movies, which I find fascinating because now he Ed is like still playing the same age. But she's like now the, the babysitter role. And uh, the other the last interesting thing, which we'll kind of get into with our uh, discussion of toxic masculinity a little bit later was uh, this film started doing its film uh, fest circuits uh, a month um after uh the me too movement kind of started so you know not that he didn't have um some of these um kind of um themes of immaturity and things uh when he was doing it but he was kind of more trying to just make a fun genre thing um with some subtext in it but then with just kind of the timing of everything uh the subtext became you know big text and you know upon this film and 
I think that might uh, kind of go into, you know, some of people's, you know, very uh, visceral feelings that they have about this film when they watch it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think I have that in my notes for later on that, like, watching this movie in October of 2016 and then watching it anytime after that feels like two different experiences. It's uh, I, I found fascinating. Um, I, I, I have more background stuff, but I didn't want to just uh, kind of make it top heavy. So as, as things kind of come up in the discussion, I'll um, sure. have some, some other um, little tidbits and quotes from uh, yeah. my uh, conversation with Peckover. All right. Well, let's talk about the movie proper then. And you know, I think we know what you're getting in for. Thank you, Devon, by the way. That was lovely. So appreciate no that. Um, we kind of know what you're in for right away. You're going to get something a bit nastier, a bit subversive. When you get this like very lovely rendition of like joy to the world and this postcard perfect snowman, like at the to open this movie up. And then moments later, this really creepazoid like smashes it with a bat and this little girl screeches like you butt fucker which is not the way you know john hughes is not starting his movie with like an eight-year-old girl screaming butt fucker at a kid uh although i would like his movies more if they did but you know that's just not what he was going for with his uh teen movies and you know you see this like perfect suburban neighborhood and I think right away, this movie is trying to kind of make you draw on nostalgia for like John Hughes and Chris Columbus. And you're immediately thinking like, oh, this looks like Home Alone or this looks like the kind of neighborhood that like Ferris Bueller would have grown up in. Right. And you're kind of immediately taken into that. Right. I mean, what were your initial thoughts when you just get this cold open. I, I mean, you're right. It does evoke those feelings from those films that um, Hughes made and Chris Columbus made. Although in Chris Columbus's defense, he was the screenwriter for Gremlins. Okay. He can go dark if he wants to. He can. I mean, Gremlins does go very, very dark, but even then Bedford Falls, like when it opens, like is like a very, very picturesque little kind of Hamlet, right? Yeah, it's it's uh it's you you are correct. It's only until later in Gremlins that it gets yep. much much darker. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's uh it opens pretty much like your typical like late eighties, early nineties holiday film, and then immediately deflates that with the sequence with the the kids and the mm -hmm. the snowman, and then continues as the film goes on even more, just like taking away any of the typical holiday cheer you would associate with those types of films mm -hmm. i think the the setup is really fun because the the tone because i'll say the comedy doesn't always work but i do like this tone of like basically still playing it like a john hughes movie but like there's a lot of john hughes movies that we watch these days and we kind of look back at it and go oh uh, that's kind of a little not that great that's a little cringy uh, i'm looking at you pretty in pink um and so whenever it's kind of showing that, I think it's like a really funny that like they play it like kind of very straight in the way that like, especially like when you uh, are introduced to Luke and Garrett and like kind of the, the conversation that they're having and establishing like their, um, their relationship and stuff. And it's like, Hey, you see, they're close and stuff. And you kind of get these like context clues that, you know, uh, uh, Garrett is maybe the, the less fortunate 
you know, between the two of them or comes from just not as privileged as a background as Luke. And, um, but then also just like their conversation, the, the way that they like kind of talk to each other. It's like, still like this is like kind of the stuff that they're talking about when you watch these like you know 80s coming of age movies and it's like oh yeah like our biggest plans are we're gonna have all this fun and we're gonna go get them girls we're gonna make out and i know all these things you know and like you know coming up with these you know facts that aren't true um and like things like that and like or oh hey i read that the you know scary movies make them you know feel this way you know it's just like oh my goodness like you sound ridiculous you know so it's like i i like hearing that style of dialogue like in a current movie is mm-hmm. makes for a weird uh, kind of awkward tone i think it also sets up that these are kids that we know like these are just bratty kids this isn't some idealized version of you know a hallmark family with these perfect kids who don't curse who don't and to start off the film with these little kids um, and then go into the conversation that you're having um, with Garrett and Luke, I think it it kind of sews that all together really perfectly. Like these are these are just the asshole kids that you know you work with, you're around your kids, your neighbor's kids, your family it's it's really yeah. welcome yeah you meet luke and garrett and you get big like i noted like big ferris bueller and cameron vibes in this relationship in that you have like one kind of leading the other around but luke doesn't really have any of that charm that ferris bueller has like you kind of root for ferris bueller throughout the running time of that movie and it's when you're a kid it's really not until you're an adult you go back and watch that movie and you're like Ferris Bueller is the bad guy in this movie like he's an asshole like he is not a good person I remember like my wife watching that movie with my wife and she's like this guy's a prick and I'm like what are you talking about like Ferris Bueller's a righteous dude and she's like no he's not a good human being and no then- he low-key sucks Actually, yeah, he, he hikey sucks. I, I, I don't like that movie. Yeah. He hikey Years sucks. later, I'm like, oh, my, as in many things, like Claire is right. Like Ferris Bueller is the worst. Here, like right from the get go, like you don't like Luke. Like even you get these, this weird kind of like insight into the relationship with his mom when you see that womb machine and you hear it making those like noises that you want that replicates what it would be like to be inside of her womb again. And then when she comes in the room and like many kids are like this, like they're like dismissive of their parents right away. Like he's very short. He's very curt with her and she doesn't correct him at all. She's all like, yeah, you, I'm your mother. Like, you can't talk to me like this. Like if, if, if our daughter talked to like my wife and I like this in front of her friends or like, all right, like your friends going home, like, I'm sorry, but you're not going to, talk to your parents like this in front of us we're just asking if you want pizza you know uh, and he's just like a little prick like he doesn't have any of that charm whatsoever uh and he's such a little he it, really good casting because like levy miller he has a perfect face for like wanting to drive your fist right through it like there's just something about his face that you're like 
Oh, I would love to punch that face. It's like every time I watch this movie, a dodgeball just magically appears in my hand and I'm just Mm -hmm. like ready to launch. Like, I'm just like, oh, man, this kid. And and I think that's it's cool because like the movie Mm -hmm. then firmly gives this movie to Ashley, like in in any other John Hughes movie, you're watching him and you're like, okay, yeah, these kids like this is the protagonist, even Mm -hmm. though they kind of suck. But you're also like, hey, I kind of want to hang out with the cool babysitter, even the janitor in Breakfast Club. I want to follow them. <laughs> like, like I have to teach anti-bullying lessons to sixth graders and bullying is bad. Like bullying. Don't get me wrong. Like kids should not be bullied, except some kids deserve to be bullied. And this kid definitely would deserve to get, but you could just see him bring it on himself is all I'm saying. That's so, all. So That's we might've had a happier film if Luke had gotten bullied more is what you're saying. I'm just saying, if this movie was 90 minutes of Luke getting bullied, would have been a much different movie, but, you know, would have been fun. Yeah, no, I could, I could see that. I could, you know, this uh, maybe he wouldn't be trying to get his his thrills and his yeah. kicks, you know, by staging things. <laughs> Jason, how do you feel about this relationship of like Luke and Garrett? Like when you first are introduced to them, like what sort of vibe are they giving off to you? Um. It, it does feel like Luke is definitely um, the one leading everything. Uh, Garrett is the follower. Um, in some ways, I, I just recently watched this um, because it played uh, locally at the Brattle uh, in Cambridge. They show Jennifer's body mm-hmm. and the relationship between uh, Jennifer and Needy in that film is um, like you have the more proactive um, leading character who doesn't make always the best decisions. And the person that is probably has um, a little bit more thought and a little bit of a conscience uh, is the follower. Unfortunately goes along and pays the price for having following along with the, uh, the one that's a little bit more, you know, proactive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think there are any queer undertones in their relationship at all? Do you think part of the reason that Garrett is so quick to want to follow Luke around is that there's maybe a bit of a, it transcends just like looking up to your best friend, but like there's maybe a bit of a crush on him as well. Like maybe Garrett is like struggling with his own feelings towards Luke. Mm. I mean, as much as I like, as much as I love to try to find queer uh, undertones in any film that I watch, uh, I, I don't see that with them because I've kind of been in Garrett's position in in different instances of my life. Like, you know, at, at, at best growing up, we were middle class, but at lowest, you know, we were kind of the, the, the poor family and mm-hmm. or we might even be living with somebody else, like a family member or something. So then I don't want to bring friends over. So I was always the one at other friends' houses, you know? So like you kind of get that vibe where it's like Garrett's there and then the parents leave, but then like, you know, they're like, oh no, tell Garrett to go home. But then Garrett can't, you know, help but want to still come over. And, you know, so like, you know, he's going to go along with this prank Mm -hmm. just so he can be back at their house again, you know? So it's like, there's a, it's more of a, a, just like a kind of dependency uh, in a way, and there's also kind of a possession angle with Luke as well, and the way that you know it's 
uh, his friend that's underneath him, his babysitter. So it's like there's a possession thing as well that, you know, would that you might see in a toxic uh, romantic mm-hmm. relationship. But uh, I, I don't see it with uh, either of these characters personally. Yeah, I like that reading that kind of possessive. These are all like objects to him. I really like that reading. I think his relationship with Garrett also shows just someone being charismatic to a certain level. Like he's an asshole, but just like Ferris, there's there's kind of this baseline charisma that they have that allows them to manipulate people in their life. He has shitty parents who mm-hmm. I think are completely unresponsive to his abhorrent behavior, but he knows how to kind of manipulate the people in his life. I think just enough. And I, I see him kind of playing his parents and Garrett very much in the same way. Do you think it's like a a charisma or do you think it's like you have a huge computer monitor and all the best games and like a swimming pool. And cause like I've joked with my daughter before, like when she's had a friend that she's had a falling out with. She's like, I don't think I want to hang out with so-and-so anymore. I'm like, well, it is June. Maybe like don't be friends with them with with September so you can go swimming this summer. And like, I've said that as a joke. I'm like, no, like if you're not friends, just be kind to them, but you don't have to. But we've joked like that. Like, you know, as kids, we've all had friends where, you know, you've gone over there because they had like more stuff. Do you know what I mean? Like that's how kids have thought at times. Yeah, but I think that also speaks to what Devon was saying about kind of like this mutual dependency to where they're really feeding off of each other's, I think, insecurities that you have at that age, Mm -hmm. being able to, um, you know, you feel out of control. Um, And so he's, uh, Luke, played by Levi, has this person that he can manipulate um in his world and you know maybe Garrett's the reverse to where it's just like I don't that scares me I don't want to make choices I just want to kind of go with the flow have fun Uh, have someone call the shots yeah and I I think it plays really well in that dynamic but I can totally understand how people would read a romantic undertone to their relationship i think especially later in Mm -hmm. the film nicole i'm wondering too how much because we get this like early interaction with luke and his mom and Mm -hmm. then you see like luke's mom deandra interact with the father you see her interact with ashley and you get this like i mean luke did not just come he did not just like come out this way. Do you know what I mean? Like you, you, you get a really good idea. Like, and I think you just mentioned it. His parents are like, not really like there and present or like dad doesn't seem super present overall. Like mom is almost like too much of a presence in his life and like too forgiving and too, um, too understanding, like almost like willing to dismiss any of his faults where you can see how, this kind of like little ball of toxic masculinity was formed by Mm -hmm. mom unwilling to assert any sort of boundaries whatsoever. 
and saying like, you're my perfect little snowflake angel that can do no wrong. And Luke having enough cunning to kind of manipulate that so that he can get out of any situation and get away with anything, right? Like, what do you think of these early interactions and these early scenes with the mom? Yeah, I think the mom character is really interesting because she is very present, but to me also seems kind of disassociated from Mm -hmm. reality of what her kid is actually doing. Like she talks about how they have this pencil that they put on the doorknob uh, to monitor sleepwalking, but has no grasp of how someone could manipulate that. And it's like, what? Like, are you like, how, how do you know? Like, what, what are you doing to like actually check? Um, because I think that, yeah, she has this version of her kid that she wants to be true and that's what he is to her and she doesn't participate in anything else that would uh, step away from that vision of her perfect little child so i i love how she's so so awful to her husband and then it's like oh my god oh my little boy i love you i mean there's a i mean if if there's gonna be any christmas themed tethers to this film uh there's like some sort of like pureness that that you know she treats luke with you know like oh i must you know he he can do no wrong um i'm, I'm not saying that luke is jesus uh, that's not what i'm saying but she thinks he's jesus <laughs> um, no um but like she because she obviously is like oh he can do no wrong. I'm not going to believe any of these things, but like, also I must protect him because I uh, have a 13 year old that still needs a babysitter. Um, like, I mean, I don't know about everyone else. Like, I mean, I was, you know, home alone by nine, but like, you oh, know, yeah. that's, that, that's just me. I know, ki- I know each kid is different. Uh, it's case by case, but 13 for a babysitter is a, is pushing it, uh, you know, pushing it. Yeah. Especially in that neighborhood where like uh, nothing ever happens. Right. right? And, well, and on, Oh, go ahead, Nicole. But that's what I'm talking about with like the woobifying of this kid and the like she has this image of this kid, this preserved image um, of him being like this little tiny, perfect little kid. And he's not. He is a teenager that is awful. And with full access to the internet like this is a this is not a kid anymore even the way luke is dressed like it's probably like eight o'clock at night and he's in like khakis christmas (laughs) sweater and his hair is perfect like that's not normal do you know what i mean like i mean like i'm in my pajamas right now basically as we record this but like it's not normal for like a teen boy to be dressed like he's going to grandma's house for like holiday dinner on like a Friday night at 8 p.m. You, you know, like it's just it's weird. Although he's weird. tonight was his big night. So, I mean, he oh, had to get true. stuff for everything. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's that is very true. And, and, and on this rewatch, I noticed with the, the mom and the dad is 
the Luke models his relationship with Garrett after his mom and dad, like the mm-hmm. way that she kind of pulls him around. She's the more assertive one. Mm-hmm. She's the one that, you know, talks to Ashley and does the payments, like all the, you know, things like she's uh, uh, wearing the, 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 the good heels in the, in this relationship, yeah. if you know what I mean. Uh, and, you know, so he's kind of sees that in the way that it's like, Oh, like, because he, he's like, well, my parents still love each other, but somebody's got to drag one of them. Do so they? like I might, the the parents or or do they? I, I do think, not think the mother loves the father whatsoever, dude. That is, you're being very I generous. I think there it's very he's very aloof. Like the dad, like really is kind of a non-entity. So I, it's kind of I don't really judge it either way of oh, any feeling. Cast him, but like, and that's why you cast Patrick Warburton because you want that aloof, good-natured, just kind of there. But like, there's nothing in Virginia Madsen's delivery of any of her lines. Like, basically, like as soon as, as soon as like her husband put a son in her belly and delivered her Luke, she had no use for him anymore. Like he's been completely replaced, and she just emasculates him repeatedly. And you just get the feeling that he's like tuned it out at this point because it's probably cheaper than getting a divorce. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's probably at the end of the day, he can just like, he can, he can just put up with it. He's like, whatever, I can just tune this out. I can just work and golf and I don't have to be around that much. And I can kind of tune off. I mean, I know I'm reading a lot into it, but I'm not reading Man. any warmth and affection between these two. I think, I, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I always just read it as like, she's trying to be like the the dark comedic one, but like Virginia Madsen, as much as I love her, she's not funny. Um, so like, I thought that's pretty much what they were going for. I never really read too much into her feelings about the, the husband at all, because it is very much just all kind of for Luke. Well, and I think we also only really see her and her husband outside of the moment at the end when they arrive home Mm -hmm. um and they're having that conversation in the car as they're coming up to the house um it's kind of like a putting on airs type thing like i need to dot like there's someone coming into my home this babysitter i'm the person in charge and so i think there's kind of a a role that she assumes, especially when other people are around as this, I think Devon said it perfectly, like wanting to have like that really dark kind of cynical, almost sardonic, whatever type of humor that's kind of biting that can rub people the wrong way. But when they're out of, you know, when it's just them, it's probably a little bit different. That would, Mm -hmm. that would be my hope. But I think, honestly, it's one of the pieces of the film that I think I wish was, I don't know. I don't know if there's a different way to approach it. I just feel like it's kind of sloppy shorthand to portray her as an overbearing, um, super attentive mother with kind of this other element of her personality where if you actually had scenes with them you would probably get a more dynamic yeah i'd love to see what they were like at the party like if you cut to like just maybe one or two minutes a couple times at like this holiday christmas party just to see what was going on um 
Well, and we talk about how awful she is, mm-hmm. but what, I mean, like, what are people's thoughts about how he, He's the father, towards Ashley. Ashley when she He's, gets there? It's a little. It's a little inappropriate. He's like, did I give you permission to move? It's like, uh, yeah, you don't get to do that. And it's a bit odd, more than a bit odd. Jason, what are your thoughts? You're quiet there. Um, I I think if there's any flaws with this movie, and that there, I'll bring up another one towards the end. But I mean, I wish that Virginia Madsen and Patrick Warburton had a little bit more screen time. Mm-hmm. Um, they're both great actors. That I mean, I mean Virginia Madsen between like Candyman and Sideways. I mean, she has a, a good range in what she can do as a performer. And I mean, I don't think I need to talk about Patrick Warburton because, I mean, he has a, like a laundry list of great comedic performances, both on television and film. So I feel like we don't get enough screen time with either of them. I mean, we get enough to get a vibe um, for both of them. But like you're saying, if there was like an additional scene midway during the movie where you got to see them at a party to see like how they are when there's no kids around in there with other adults to see how that plays out. Um, or just having them have like a little bit longer time at the beginning, because this movie clocks in under 90 minutes. So I feel like there, it almost would benefit from having a slightly longer runtime. Would it um, though? I mean, I I'm mean, not saying the torture parts should be extended. I'm just saying like the parts of the beginning where you mm-hmm. get just. I mean, I think there's, I mean, I think, I mean, we're we're not really here to hang out with the parents, you know. So like I think it's the the lack of them also just like kind of hints into the part where it's like, um, you know, how much of this is, you know, the nurture from the overbearing mom, or is Luke just also a psychopath, you know? So it's like, you know, to not have any more connection to them, uh, kind of, you know, leaves that ambiguity up. Like I don't really want to see more, you know stuff from the parents to explain away more of Luke's actions because I like also that Luke is just also unhinged and these actions, you know, do also just come from his own accord. I just find them fascinating. And I think Jason said it well, like you get two like really good performers and like Patrick Warburton and Virginia Madsen. I kind of just want to hang out with them more anyway, because like, I just like watching them on screen and you know, like Virginia Madsen delivers like that line she delivers. Like, are you sure you have never sucked another man's cock? And like, that is vicious. Like that transcends like playful banter between a couple that's been together a long time. And like, that is, it, there's a lot of venom in that line. I just read that as like, that wasn't, you know, like, Hey, I'm here to accept you no matter what you've done in your past. And if you want to experiment a little bit at this Christmas party, that's totally cool. She's like, I fucking hate you. That's so funny. Like did, did Virginia Madsen hurt you, Mike? Because no, like, I, 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 I always read there. it just as like a, like, Oh, like it's kind of 2016. Like, Hey hun, you can like admit it. Like, Hey, if you had an oh, experimental no, time, that, like, that's cool. Like I, I, I don't like see like any of this, like venom from her personally. I think, like, honestly, <laughs> I think because a, my wife and I like have playful banter a lot and we joke around a lot and we have like, it doesn't look like this. Um, and B, I work with a number of couples that look like this and it's not playful. It is playing referee with people. Um, and it's like, I, you have to sometimes ask people like, are you too sure you want to be married still? 
Like I've literally had to ask that question in sessions. Like, are you too sure that you want to stay married with one another? And when they say yes, you have to ask why. And then it, then it gets very, very quiet. But like, it's just, it seems like it hurts. Like, no, Virginia, I would look, I would love if Virginia, Virginia Madsen wants to hurt me. Like, I would love that. I would like nothing more than that. I would pay good money for that. If there's a patron level where like you could pay to have Virginia Madsen hurt me, sign me up for it. Okay. I'm all here. But like, she's great in this role, but like she, her, I think she's great as the mom. Uh, she she does what she needs to do here. And I think you get a, per, I just wish there was a little bit more of it. That's Same. all. Same. Well, I think we we gave her more conversation than amount of screen time that she has. So, so well, there we go. All right. So is that Madsen. your way of saying I'm moving on? Madsen. Is that what you're trying to say? Like, let's move <laughs> on right now to Vaughn. All right, we'll move on. Let's talk about Ashley. Um, let's talk about our, final girl here i feel like she's a champ i feel like she's really good at like seeing how much people have expect and demand of her but i also think she's really good at like setting boundaries and demanding they be respectful and uh you know and like she sees that i don't think she kind of compliments quite how demented luke is i mean who could but she's like very good at being gentle with a 12 year old's feelings at first until he starts to cross a line, right? Yeah, you can you can like feel the rapport that they have. Like you can tell, like you know that they this is you know they've uh, done this multiple times. Uh, it's kind of a, a you know a, at the at the start, you know, like you know before he you know starts making his moves on her and shit. Um, but like before, it's like it, it kind of is um, a little reminiscent of like in the babysitter, like they're kind of. Uh, like you can tell that's like they've been, you know, had this relationship, but, you know, it obviously changes as you get older, especially again, like the idea of you're 13 and you're still being looked after by, you know, by your babysitter um, who but now at this point is, you know, you know, she's, uh, you know, he he thinks he's like, oh, I'm within range now. And it's like, no, 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 you're, you're still not because like of this relationship that, you know, you have prior um, so yeah, it's a, a, an interesting way, but it, it very much the the uh, veneer and facade of this relationship very much like slips like very fast. Because we talked a little bit about how it's strange that a kid of this age would have a babysitter that I think is really close. Like, yes, there's an age gap, but that is still somewhat kind of close in age, age range of him. I think that's really, I think, um, interesting. And I wonder, like, especially as she, I think she's kind of looking at this as like, I only have to do this one more time and then I'm out of town and I only have to be around this kid one more time and I'm out of town. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why, like they do have a rapport and I do think that you know they they probably have you know she's probably enjoyed taking care of him like I'm sure at a different point in time he was probably just a kid um under her care but um I just I always wonder like from the baby babysitter's perspective like what's going through her mind when she's like I'm here watching a 13 yeah. year old 
it's like she knows it's coming like like you know she's like oh my god like why am i still babysitting this kid if i'm you know because she knows yeah. as soon as you know boys turn a certain age like you know that's where his mind's gonna go so it's like it sucks that it's like okay let me do this one more but then this is the night where it's like ah shit like now he he's he's feeling himself like oh shit like now he's getting he's trying to kiss me and feel my boobs ah you know, like, you know, she kind of knew that one of these nights would come if she had to keep babysitting him. But, you know, she just wanted that that one last paycheck, which, I mean, who doesn't need the bag, you know? Yeah, Jason, what were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to say there's a line in the movie where I believe Ashley says to uh, to Luke that, uh, you know, I've known you since you were eight. So, I mean, this has been going and he's 12 going on 13. So now it's been like four years of this. So I, you um almost kind of wonder at what point it was where he turned where it was just like okay it's um starting off as just like okay I'm you're my babysitter and you know you're watching me while my parents are away to when he gets into his stalker you know movie villain role there so um so yeah it's it's uh she's she's um doing her best to hold him off and to let him down easy. But because this has probably been building up for a number of years and he's has his like little scenario planned out. Um, then she has to kind of like deal with um, unfortunately going back to work there one last time. Yep. But what I like about Ashley is like, she demands dignity during this whole thing. Like she's like, even when she's just talking to her Ricky on the phone, like, no, you can't come over. Like tonight's not a good night. Like she's not going to entertain him. She's like, I've told you, you can't like, this is over. Like maybe I'll see you tomorrow. Why are we putting off the inevitable here? Like she's not, I don't think there's ever a moment in the movie where you hear her like begging for her life. Like she's always like in control of her emotions. She always even though she spends like the last two thirds of the movie pretty much tied to a chair, she never really feels like a victim. Like she always feels like she has some sort of agency. And I think a lot of that comes in uh, De Young's performance. Yeah. That, uh, I asked him specifically about that because I was like, yeah, like she's in the chair the whole time. So he said that they came up with these rules uh, for her character and he said this was with Olivia herself because he was like there really wasn't too many uh, women on set so he's like I'm letting you you know you know kind of uh, make these decisions here but like it was basically uh, one rule is like she could never beg uh, she could never cry um, and like at any point is she like beneath him like even if she is like to the chair still like mentally like she's at least on the same page with him or a step ahead still like regardless of her like kind of physical situation which i thought was like you know fantastic and she she pulls it off like i mean hell her mouth is covered for half the movie and it's all eye work you know and like um and you know she you know olivia de like really kills this performance like she is so so good oh yeah yeah oops sorry nicole you first i think a part of it is also to to what you guys were talking about earlier she's anticipating i think a bit of this like there's probably as she's been babysitting him probably within the last year there's probably been like little inklings that he's he's got a crush he's being a little more mm -hmm. attentive he's doing things and so she's probably like 
a little bit more prepared. And I think that that really makes her much more able to be in the driver's seat and be like, okay, no, I understand. Like, unfortunately, that gives me a little bit more control than what you may be thinking it does. And so I know how to work this situation a little bit because you, I'm, it's my affection that you want and only I can control that. Mm -hmm. So I think that gives her such autonomy in the film. As just like the first third of this movie before you get to the twist where you feel like it's a home invasion movie, which we had seen like a number of them in recent years, either in movies like your next inside the strangers like there'd been a real renaissance of good home invasion movies does this work just on those terms before you know we get that route that kind of like spin on things at the end of the first act how does this work um well watching it the first time i feel that the filmmakers do a very solid job of giving you um a lot of the elements that you would probably see in a home invasion movie um, that um, and they play it pretty close to the, to the, to the chest as to how um, what's, what's actually happening in the film. Um, what I, so earlier in the, in the movie, there's this, um, there's this bit where, um, and I think we've already touched upon it where it's, let's uh, Luke and Garrett they're they're in the room and, um, Luke's reading something off of his article he found online and talking about like, oh, well, if you want to get a move, a woman in the mood, you just watch a scary movie because the, you know, you release dopamines when you're watching and you get scared during that. So you can imagine him coming up with the scenario where it's like, well, instead of just watching a scary movie, what if I, it's like me and Ashley actually in a scary movie and it'll take it one step further. You know, she won't just want to like, grab me or hold my hand. Um, But I think what ends up happening is that he doesn't anticipate that Ashley is going to have as much agency and drive to kind of like take the initiative in a lot of those situations, because there's certain moments where he's trying to come off as being like the hero in the situation. And it just comes off really pathetic. Mm -hmm. Like when he opens the door and he shouts that I know Taekwondo, it's Mm -hmm. just like, you're, you're like a stick figure and yeah. you weigh like probably like a hundred pounds. Like, yeah, I don't think you're th- threatening anybody. And that's where um, like the puberty voice really works too. Like yes, that. exactly. Yeah. Um, But yeah, it's, I, and what I, I feel like like this movie Cabin in the woods, you're next there. There are films that came out in the 2010s where if you were to just like, describe the movie in the briefest of terms it sounds like a very typical horror film like oh a bunch of friends they go off to the cabin in the woods to party or there's a family that gathers and there's it's a you know reunion and then there's there's mass figures in the woods or Mm -hmm. there's it's a babysitter and she's watching a couple of kids and all of a sudden there's somebody outside doing creepy stuff and it's almost like in the 90s when scream happened and you had movies becoming a little bit more postmodern mm-hmm. and making a lot of references to other films with the films from the 2010s like the three that i cited it's almost like they they were just 
trying to find, okay, what is a very cliched premise and what can you do to kind of like spin it off and so that the plot goes in a direction you're not expecting. So yeah. Um, yeah. that was my vibe from- Yeah, from totally agree with that. Like do something different with it, do something unique, but use what's familiar there so you can at least hook people in with what's familiar. I mean, I think it's, I think it's, you know, it's good enough the first time around, like when you watch it, it's, it's, you know, just enough where there's a few, you know, little tense set pieces uh, with like some, you know, camera work with some like interesting shots. So I kind of, you know, get you, get you uneasy a little bit. Um, But I think it also, it functions in a completely different way when you rewatch it. Cause then uh, when you're rewatching it, this is like the first instance of, you know, this toxic masculinity that's kind of boiling uh, within Luke. I love what Jason was talking about of, you know, him expecting this to be a, oh, I'm going to protect my uh, damsel and distress babysitter from a home invasion. I'm going to look like such a man. She's going to be so turned on by that. And it's like, bro, like she's, you know, she's 18 and she's the one looking after you. Of course, she's going to be the proactive one. And, you know, she's, you know, like, you know, like stepping out and doing all these things that, again, is taking away from him, uh, you know, his idealized version of like how the night is supposed to be going, you know, and like, yeah, it's so silly to, you know, you know, take it one step further of like you said, being like, oh, like, we don't just need to watch a scary movie. We need to be in one. It's like, bro, like, you're such a like, you know, in what world would that work? And that, right, you know, already shows his immaturity in how you know mature he thinks that he is well not only that like what you guys have both said about like how he's trying to get the dopamines going and like not regarding like how she's going to feel but his own immaturity like and his lack of feeling for others like he almost gets her killed like you know there's the point where she almost falls out of the uh, out of the attic and like she would have broken the back of her head like it would have smashed open like a watermelon you know like he almost kills her because of his own carelessness and lack of thinking um and you can see a reading of this movie where let's say the home scenario the home invasion scenario plays out to its end and luke kills garrett and says oh, I didn't know that my my friend must have broken back in because he's jealous of us. And like, I don't know why he would have done this, but like, Ashley, I still saved you. And like, Garrett would not have known. Like you could have, you could totally see Luke being the kind of like little psychopathic creep that would have set his fright. As soon as like, Garrett is always set up to die in this movie. It's like my thought one way or another, like he's either going to die in the home invasion scenario or once it goes awry, he's going to be one of the um, loose ends that Luke has to clean up because Garrett is going to fold under pressure and like Luke can't risk that. I just think that his setup shows that he is not familiar with the home invasion subgenre. Okay. Or and how to really execute it with panache. Mm-hmm. Um, it's deeply upsetting. Um, I like a couple of like Devon was saying there's a couple of really good set pieces. Um, and, and I agree 100%. This is all because this continues. It's all bits and pieces of how he wants to bring Ashley into him. Um, but it's just, I'm like, Oh, like this, this doesn't work. Like, and I think that that's why she 
she's unsettled, but she's smart enough to be like, there's, I, I need to have my whereabouts. Like I need to understand like what's going on. I need to have kind of this constant vigilance because I don't like, there's just something off like the pizza delivery. Show me an example of where someone that's invading our home is going to send you a pizza. <laughs> oh, I would love that person. Well, same, but like, that's a welcome gonna... invasion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's like, you're going to feed me and then kill me. Like, I, I think what's you interesting, spent 20 bucks, like you just spent 20 bucks. Like that's on you. Right? I think they're hoping that you get full from pizza and you're slower than. To yeah. Kill. You're a bit logy and you can't eat a whole pie. So maybe like the killer then has a couple slices <laughs> afterwards, you know, cause they got to eat. They got to and- refuel after like, Look, chasing people down in a house that big and then killing them is that's hungry work. His his plan reeks of uh, somebody uh, that the, the, the burnout kid in high school, like met him behind a dumpster and was like, hey, here's a bootleg copy of Funny Games. And uh, and that became Luke's uh, personality for the rest of this. Um, the, the movie was supposed to be called Safe Neighborhood, but Funny Reindeer Games would be an also great alternate title here. Um, but it like on the rewatch, this is where you get to watch in the in the home invasion part is the part where you're watching Luke do you know, like try to, you, you're watching little things that like, you know, like, you know, the pizza thing, he obviously set it up because he like takes the pizza and he like scurries into the kitchen, like all excitedly. And it's just like, or uh, whenever he has uh, Garrett do the, the creepy phone call, he's like, oh, Ashley you should totally answer that. Like you really should. I wonder who it is. And he's like waiting to like watch her reaction of her, like mm-hmm. getting scared and none of it's working, you know? So it's like, uh, you know, he, so and and like you said, Mike, the, if there was a version of this where this plays out and the, this would be the whole movie is like you like kind of watching Luke. But I, I still think even if you played out the like fake home invasion for the whole movie, you still have to reveal that Luke's in on it at some point, because then it becomes you're watching Luke trying to, you know, cover his tracks during this fake invasion and still try to keep her in it, which I think could be interesting, but then the whole movie is focused on Luke. And I like that with this version, Ashley, like takes the movie away from him. Like, because like he is, you know, this whole thing is about possession and, you know, this starts off being Luke's movie by, by the end of this, this is Ashley's movie. She, she takes it from him. Um, And so like, I, like the way it plays out this way rather than keeping the the home invasion going for longer well to your point peck over you had said like in the in the intro like peck over inverted the movie like it was supposed to be much Mm -hmm. much more and he inverted that because that was less interesting i read in an interview like garrett wasn't even a character in the original script like they added garrett in order to give like someone else for luke to play off of And I would have been like fascinated, like, how do you pull off the home invasion angle at that without an accomplice? Yeah. But I I think that that's the flip side is like, obviously, Luke is orchestrating this, but there's points where you have to kind of factor in, like, what is Garrett's role and what Mm -hmm. where does he start to say, I'm okay with this, like, I'm okay just kind of like fucking around. And, you know, essentially like pranking this girl mm-hmm. to 
get her on your side or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I don't want to go to this point. Yeah. And I think that with home invasion, we don't like that. That would be interesting to see because I don't think that's something that is really built into the structure of a lot of home invasion films. It's where one person is like, no, 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 I have to check out because this is going too far. I mm-hmm. I wanted to break in and, you know, rearrange furniture. I didn't want, I want to, to steal some it. jewelry. I don't want exactly. to kill anyone. Yeah, I want to eat the rich. I don't want to kill the rich type of deal. Yeah. Right. So we get like the reveal that it's Garrett because he's itching himself. And, you know, we get that little call back to what he, which I think is really nice. And I think that it, what's nice is it's, it's like the rug is pulled out very quickly, but then you get the other twist, which is like once, uh, you know, Ashley knows what's going on and she's like, you two are in so much fucking trouble like Luke plays his other card and like that when he punches her in the face and sends her down the stairs, like I thought she was dead and I'm like, holy shit, like the rest of this movie is going to be him trying to cover up that murder, uh, like which would have been very Hitchcockian, but it's not, it's her tied to this chair. And then like listeners, I'll let you know, like the next section, uh, just a little content warning. We're going to talk about sexual assault here. Uh, so for listeners that might be sensitive to that, you may need to skip ahead a little bit. We just, you know, we'll try to talk about it in a sensitive way because like this scene is like this truth or dare scene with like the sexual assault is like really upsetting because there's literally nothing Ashley can do. And like you had said before, Devon, like she never begs, she never screams. She just like bears it and she's just fuming this whole time. Um, and it's just that makes it all the more upsetting that like she just sits there and, and has to fume while these two little dipshits that like their balls haven't even dropped yet. You know, I think like Garrett even makes a joke like you don't even have fucking pubic hair yet. Um, and Luke is like groping her. And what makes it even like more upsetting is like he gets an erection during it. Like when that gets hinted at, like that is just so demeaning it's like and again like where this movie like loses me a bit it's like we had this like light and it's funny and it's like ha 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 and it's this play on tone and then you have this happening and it's like really hard to like reconcile those two tones yeah he he had like a, a way of like the way he approached this and like a lot of these scenes with Luke because yeah, like, cause once the, the, the twist happens and like, you know, this changes for Garrett cause he wasn't anticipating this. And like, now this is kind of, um, you know, Luke kind of acting on just instinct and primal desire that he's like has for her now. And now he's playing out this new fantasy, you know, um, you know, uh, aside from the, the home invasion part. And so, so he, he would kind of want to do things where like every time that Luke did something like horrible, he wanted to like follow up with like something like childish to like kind of, uh, you know, to like take away like the true impact that like someone of this care, like if this character was an adult, you know, doing these kind of things and still very heinous, but like kind of taking the legs out from every mm-hmm. act that he does. So even though he is doing this, like, terrible like kind of gro you know grotesque thing to her um you know with the the boner thing i was like well not boner erection thing but um but with that part is 
Um, it, you know, like that plays on the the kind of the guy insecurity, though, also of just like, you know, like when you're in class and like, you know, that happens, it's like that's like one of the most, you know, embarrassing things. So it's like and then that's whenever, you know, and like Garrett, like, like says something. And then that's whenever Luke, like, has one of his voice cracks and he like turns around and he like, you know, you know, walks away and like, it's almost like, you know, so and then she kind of has like a jab, like, because like, again, she's, she's not dumb. She knows how 13 year olds work. And so she's just like, Oh, like, of course, like, oh, you know, all you got to do is touch my boob. And like, that's what happens. Like, you're so pathetic, you know, so it's like, Mm -hmm. even in that moment, like, you know, she's still not the, the pathetic one he is. It's hard to watch because she is like, this is really a point where I think, yes, she's still in control. She's still able to get her jabs in and she's um, still has, I think, a, a sense of an upper hand here. She's still being violated. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's really hard to watch. But I think this turn from like you were mentioning, Mike from kind of more of a lighthearted um, thing to something that's a lot, I think, darker is really important because I think we really want to see just how despicable this character is. I don't think we want to have like any kind of warm, uh, scrappy Kevin, Mc- you know, Kevin McAllister feelings right. about him. I think we want mm-hmm. to know that he is truly awful and is representing a lot of different things. So I it's very jarring and it's upsetting, but I kind of have come around to appreciate just how hard and fast that switch is because mm-hmm. I think it's it's really important. Yeah. Um <clears throat> For that scene, um, it's she is tied up and she is being assaulted by Luke. Um, but very quickly, she attempts to gain control of the situation by then when Truth or Dare continues bringing up the fact that Luke is responsible for the death, I believe, of Garrett's either hamster. Hamster, hamster. hamster yeah. So it's um, it's a it's a tough watch, but then when you start to see how she's trying to, even though th- that she's in a very precarious situation, trying her best to outsmart them, um, it's I, I I appreciate that even though that she's obviously in the difficult situation that the, the filmmakers gave her the. Um, the opportunity to try and get an upper hand on them, even the, despite the situation that she's in. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I like how Nicole put it too, that it was important to, uh, you know, take anything like, I mean, you watch the setup of the movie. I don't think anybody was, you know, like, Oh, I really like this Luke kid. He's kind of interesting. You know, like this is like, again, like it's taking the, the, you know, like, Hey, the rest of the movie, you will not be rooting for this kid. Like in, right. in case that wasn't clear. Uh, so it's like, I, I do a, uh, a, uh, appreciate it on a on a structural level uh in that way and it also is like kind of a just like an interesting portrayal and like in the typical you know sexploitation film 
uh, like this would be the the part where it's like a you know like in the 70s this would be like a brutal rape scene or something like that and like this also shows that it's like you don't need that like you literally you know can have something as simple as a teenager doing this and it still has the impact that you know something like that would um so yeah for for structural reasons i think it is a important kind of to to pivot Mm -hmm. the film into its you know kind of next leg and you have to be able to define i think garrett and luke as this is really that you know it's a motorcycle and a sidecar to where the sidecar is like i'm this is beyond what i signed up for we're getting to a place right but he's still going on for that ride yeah you know what i mean like there's multiple there's multiple times throughout this where like garrett could have stepped in and have done something to have stopped it you know especially like once ricky shows up like there maybe would have been strength in numbers but like garrett still sides with his buddy well this is where oh go ahead nicole well, no, absolutely. And I'm not excusing anything that Garrett has done. He's also awful. But I think the reason that she comes in with that quip about the hamster, why she brings that up is bringing, like, is causing that rift and being able mm-hmm. to be like, look mm-hmm. at what your friend is capable of. Yeah. And I don't think this is in your wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. So I think that she's really setting up kind of those um, those pieces there. And I, I think it is interesting. It's upsetting, but it's interesting. Yeah. So you, you go from this, you introduce Ricky to the picture and you see like Luke is still like he's clever, but he's still 12. He's easily overpowered and not the brightest. Like Ricky, who doesn't seem like the sharpest bulb, kind of like outthinks Luke in this moment. It's like, well, just give these to her and like just muscles his way in, but is quickly, you know, like doesn't really, uh, he's quickly like beaten down within the base, which is pretty horrific, like getting cracked in the head with that aluminum bat. And I think we mentioned the ode to Clockwork Orange after that. And we get like the scene that this movie is probably best known for, like the, homage to home alone here um which is really horrific and i see this whole moment is like a a riff on those 80s and 90s like kid and teen comedies where the protagonist would get up to shenanigans and they would play out as like really funny on screen but if you were to like open up your morning newspaper with your coffee and read about this sort of thing you would be like horrified. Um, And I'm thinking of like Home Alone 2 in particular. Because like Home Alone, you know, Kevin McAllister, he's defending his house. Like the wet bandits have broken in. I mean, yeah, it's over the top, but like you can understand where he's coming from. Home Alone 2, man, it's a horror movie. Like you want, I I am on the record. Home Alone 2 is like, we will cover Home Alone 2 at some point as a straight on horror movie. Because, like, you watch a kid become a sociopath on screen. Like, Kevin just wants to hurt people. You know what I mean? Like, at any point, he could have gotten away from the wet bandits. Like, New York City is big. Like, he could have just been gone. He lures them in to his uncle's place. And he is, like, ducking bricks into the face and the heads of Daniel Stern and Joe Pesci. Just, like, hucking bricks at their faces. 
and laughing about it. Like he is a deranged fucking psychopath. All right. Like you cannot convince me otherwise. Like I guarantee like it, it, the real sequel to home alone three would have been like his mother, like didn't get him the brand of cereal that he liked. So he cuts her throat in his sleep and he does it to his whole family. Like that would have been a home alone three. Cause he would have really been home alone at that point. Like it just, I know it's not saw season anymore, but Home Alone 2 could be a John Kramer prequel. It that really one's for you, Ari. <laughs> it really could have been. Um, like that is so this is Luke really feels like one of those characters from these 80s movies, but like what you actually would have seen. I think like Devon, way back, you said you look at like those early John Hughes movies and you watch them now and you're like, this is a bit icky. Like you watch 16 candles. You know, when Anthony Michael Ugh, Hall like worst. sleeps with a girl when she's asleep, you look at like Bender in The Breakfast Club and he like relentlessly nags uh, Molly Ringwald the whole movie and then ends up with her. Like these, you know, I don't think John Hughes would have written the same movie in 2023. It was a different time, but like they are not the most positive feel good messages when viewed through modern lenses. I'll admit that. And, and this, I feel like the. Oh, go ahead. But this is the reality. And I think mm-hmm. that that's what is, I think, really captivating about this film is that we've had these tropes in film because society is what it is. People are who they are. And I think that this is saying, yeah, remember when we used to celebrate mm-hmm. characters like Ferris Bueller, like Bender? Like Anthony Michael Hall, Farmer Ted, yeah, and Sixteen Candles. Well, this is actually what is happening. Like, yep. here, here's some of the elements at play, and isn't that really disgusting? And yeah. so, I, again, I think that's why that starting off from the top of having like, oh, cute kids playing, no, um, and then going like through and seeing how twists play out i think it just really is um i think interesting especially when you bring in that home alone bit to where it's like yeah kevin McAllister actually would have been probably culpable of murder multiple mm-hmm. times. i think th- i think the scene is like a really cool melding of these two sensibilities you know like uh because again we are taking like you know the characters like like ducky totally would uh, be the one that be, is like oh these that guy doesn't deserve you so i'm gonna paint can him to death like mm-hmm. you know it, like you would 100 be the one to do this um so it's like it's melding that sensibility but then also with like current days like like of course luke and garrett have watched every episode of MythBusters, and they've had days where they have tested theories before but now they get to test a real juicy one you know like hey like would uh, would Kevin McAllister be maiming people or would he actually have murdered somebody with this paint can? And like, you know, so it's like getting uh, to see that play out. And um, the, the funny thing um, that uh, Peckover mentioned about um, doing this scene was uh, they weren't allowed to say home alone, you know, for for copyright purposes. Uh, you know, they would have uh, had to gain permission, all the whole things. Um, they couldn't say home alone, but he found a loophole that you can 
uh, he couldn't use home alone, uh, the noun, the proper noun, but he could use it as a verb. So that's where uh, birth line, like, oh, my God, are you home aloneing him? And using it as a uh, active verb uh, was uh, his loophole for that. Very clever. What say you, Jason? Well, I, I actually had a question since it seems like um, there's been a lot of research done into like the making of this movie. So in looking into the background of Better Watch Out, did Chris Peckover ever say like if he was a fan of these types of movies, like the 80s and 90s films, or did it was, was this intentionally like he was going about critiquing the films of John Hughes? He he, he was a fan like he, he definitely wasn't setting out like he he like, you know, wanted to touch on some of these like more modern, like kind of, um, you know, kind of grown up themes on like taking a look at that. But um, but it, it, he, he wasn't like trying to satirize them. Uh, at least from what he what he had mentioned. I was just curious because I mean it's it's from our discussion. I mean it's it's clear that like some of John Hughes's films have not aged the best over the years. Uh, I mean there are some that have. I mean I planes, trains, and automobiles. Oh yeah, that's that's perfect a classic. movie. Perfect yeah. movie. I don't think I don't think there's anything problematic about that movie yet. No, not yet. And even like, again, the problematic aspects of John Hughes movies, I would never say like, don't watch them because I think they capture that time period in a really great way. And it's okay to watch those movies and consider like what has changed in 40 years. Just Mm -hmm. like if you watch a movie from the 1940s, things have changed. Like we're not meant to like burn culture from 40 years ago and say like it needs to be destroyed it's okay like just like if john hughes were alive today in writing these movies i think he was like an empathetic writer and his movies would look different i think they would carry a similar spirit but they would look different and i think they would have a a wildly different tone i don't think you would see a lot of the cat i don't think you'd see them punching down like they did uh, back then and I don't think that wasn't unique to John Hughes I think you see that in a lot of movies from that era just that he was one of the preeminent film like he set the tone mm. for that whole movement of filmmaking so we often bring him up so I don't mean to like pick on him in any way but like Jason you also call this like one of the most tense scenes of the whole movie like what are your thoughts of just how it played out yeah, because I mean, I remember as a as a kid watching Home Alone, and even even then, I, I mean, there was something about that movie that just didn't feel right to me. Mm-hmm. I think it's because, like, I grew up watching the Three Stooges. Oh yeah, I, like, a lot of Same. physical comedies like that, or the old Warner Brothers cartoons, and in those those shorts i mean everything is kind of being happened happening in like the heat of the moment or immediately it's not like mo is methodically planning out how he's going to hurt mm-hmm. larry curly as opposed to in this like in home alone where kevin is like plotting how he's going to have the wet bandits get hurt if they come into his house so to have like this taken to it the next level where luke has ricky tied up and he starts swinging those paint cans near his head and they don't they don't connect right away and he's just begging for him to stop yeah and then the last can comes down and finally connects and it sends all that yellow paint out Mm -hmm. just so just 
Yeah. <laughs> and the red yeah. and yellow together look great. Oh, yeah. It, it pops super nicely. The thing with this scene that uh, always gets me, I mean, it's I, I really love the way that it's filmed. But the thing that always gets me, and this gets me in any horror film, is when somebody pees their pants uh, in a situation and this guy poor poor guy uh, Jason like he's like you know like finally Luke is like you know like getting him all riled up and then he like pisses himself and then he decides to kill him with the paint can because of it you know it was just like damn like the, I always just feel extra bad when that mm-hmm. happens to people so like the, it made it worse mm-hmm. you know? and poor Ricky was the one guy with Ashley who's like hey if uh, you escape like you escape like don't come back for me I'll be mm-hmm. fine and he was like look we had a nice little fling but like I know like this wasn't gonna last like whatever like you're I'm like super excited for you to go lead like your new life like I know that we weren't meant to be like he was like the only person in this movie that accepted like Ashley for who she was and like appreciated her for that and he gets a paint can in the face for it. So the message here is like, don't be nice to people. Um, I also think it's again, Luke trying to show some kind of dominance or superiority to Ashley to be like, look how, like, look out. I I have the upper hand on this guy that mm -hmm. you've deemed more worthy than me. And so I think it plays just back into the total theme of him trying yeah. to like, again, she, she does have this element of ultimate control to be like, I'm not, you know, to quote Shania Twain, that don't impress me much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think it's a, yeah, it's, it's for the power trip, but it's also like, it's an ego thing for him, you know, because I mean, that takes into the the other scene too when he's like okay well now i dispatched a ricky let me go ahead and get rid of the other guy uh that's been like hanging around this was like uh, ashley's ex and like that scene is uh super upsetting and peckover said he was like he's like so he's like that scene came from the original script he goes now imagine that like that kind of tone for the entire movie that's what the original script was like was like this scene where he you know um gets a uh, uh, Dacre Montgomery's character, I forget his name, um, but gets him to write a, a, a letter to Ashley and then uses that as a, a suicide note and frames the the death to look like he unalived mm-hmm. himself. Like that is so upset. Like that's whenever I was like, oh, like Luke is like, he is pure cold blooded yeah. psychopath. There is nothing behind his eyes. Like that's whenever I was like, like this kid is crazy. And then that's when I started really getting the fear for Ashley. I'm like, oh shit, like hey, don't do anything. Is she gonna is she gonna make it out of this? Like, yeah, like right. like you know, like this kid is you know like capable than so much more than we thought, you know, from the beginning of the movie, you know, from his like little simple, you know, home invasion heist. And now we've evolved to, you know, committing the murder while also getting the victim to cover his tracks. It's like, oh shit, like this kid like levels up very fast. Uh, in his depravity, you know, throughout this film. Well, that's where, you know, when he's like, look what you made me do is a frame or a frame he uses a lot. And he says it when his voice is cracking and he's almost like cry screaming it. He like one of his really, you know, aside from all the murder, like one of his most insidious traits is like, there's no responsibility, not even remorse, but there's not even any responsibility. Like, yeah, I'm the one doing this. Like he, 
blames Garrett for Ricky's death, saying, well, you were smoking weed in the house, so I had to kill Ricky in order to cover that up. I would have gotten trouble because, like, my parents would have smelled weed. And then, like, he, you know, blows his friend Garrett away in cold blood because Garrett, you know, like, touches her face and then kisses her on the cheek uh, and then gets, like, shotgun for it. And like Garrett's death is like really upsetting. Like Garrett starts like calling for help. And then like he starts to say, I want my mom. And then Luke guns him down. Uh, it's a really, like, I think you mentioned funny games. Um, like, I think that like definitely harkens back to something like, you know, Haneke esque you know, it, again, it's just like a super upsetting death and it's, how quickly like Luke turns on his best friend since they were like little boys and he's screaming, this is your fault. You made me do this. Uh, Taking no responsibility whatsoever. I still argue that like Garrett was probably a goner from the minute he walked in the door that night um, because like Luke doesn't really care about anybody but himself. Well, I mean, the original plan was like it was just supposed to be Garrett was going to be, you know, the secret home invasion. But there wasn't mm-hmm. going to be uh, like, you know, any leading to death, I think, is after like it takes the turn of him like deciding like, oh, this mm-hmm. is the night. Now we know at this point, like even though he's allowing Garrett to like take part in the truth or dare and he's like allowing him to like, you know, hang around, still do stuff. Yeah. At the end of the day, he's going to be a loose end. So it's like once it turned to that, that's when I immediately knew and like Peckover said, like he like, you yeah. know, wanted uh, Garrett in the film, not only be to kind of have a grounded, neutral character, um, but also like, you know, he knew it would come to this point later in the film where it's like, uh, you know, if like the moment that Luke kills Garrett, it's like that's when it's like, OK, like it like, you know, he is capable of anything. He has crossed the line now, like, you know, the one character that he had a semblance of, you know, some sort of relationship, because I, I think, you know, even though Luke is a, a psycho kid, like, I think he does like have a, a genuine friendship with Garrett to a degree. He's just very controlling about it and very toxic and terrible. I but just I don't think that there's no, like not no love between them. So it's like, that's why he is like, well, shit, like I had these two, I'm trying to have these two possessions Ashley and Garrett, but now I just had to get rid of one. And then by the end of the film, he has no, neither of them. But I don't, I think there's a clear distinction between a friendship and a possession. I don't think there's a genuine friendship with Luke and Garrett. I think Garrett is a means to an end. Like Garrett is a toady. Garrett, like hero worships Luke. And I think Luke maybe likes having someone do that to an extent. Um, But I think the minute that Garrett, like, if Garrett were ever to exert any agency and say like, no, this is what I want to do, then Luke would no longer have any use for him. And that's not a friendship. Yeah. I mean, I think it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning with the codependency. And I think Garrett is a character that even though he does some really shitty things, you have hope that he, I don't want to say grow out of it because I feel like that's really dismissive of a lot of different things but you have hope that okay he he may not be this way forever like there is something that's like you said grounded um to where luke has no grasp of that and 
I can understand what Devon is saying in that he has these two, like he was using one to get to the other. This one just now has become a block as opposed to an aid. Mm-hmm. This person isn't going to let, is, is going to cause interference if he wants to continue to go any further. Um, and so he's like, well, ultimate goal is this possession because I may not be able to hold on to this one for very long. So it's it's the like killing off like the like last kind of part of humanity they did have because I mean this is an isolated incident like they've been hanging out like doing stuff and like and he obviously even if it is like still yes a like very toxic possession possessive you know kind of relationship he still knows that like at the end day he can't be alone though because then who is going to be there to appreciate the things that he does who's going to be there to laugh at his jokes so like I don't know base level he still needs him as a friend to a degree but then like killing him is like that's killing off like the last like kind of shred of humanity that he had got it so we get this odd moment like right before luke kill tries to kill ashley where he says like you know when i was a little boy i my mom would hold me for hours and i would fall asleep and i felt really safe and really warm and then she stopped doing it and I don't know why. And Ashley's like, I know exactly why she did. And I love that moment. Like, because A, like, again, Ashley, like, you know, you think it'd be like, she knows how dangerous he is. And you would think that she would do anything to kind of like buy herself some time. But she's like, nope, like, I'm not going to give this guy the satisfaction of like begging or comfort. And also um, it kind of hints that like, there's a part of the mother that knows like what a monster this kid is. Like the mom maybe turned off some of the physical affection because like, maybe there's a part of her like subconsciously that knows like she's raised a little bit of a monster. And I kind of really love this moment in the film as well. Well, throughout the movie, um, Luke is very much a control freak. I mean, Mm -hmm. to have planned out everything that happened Throughout the course of the evening, you'd have to be. So the fact that Ashley is kind of dangling this information in front of him and isn't going to tell him why, um, it just sets him off. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and it's kind of a, a last minute attempt to get back at him for everything that he's done throughout the entire night. Um So I don't even know if she actually does know exactly why, but it's just an opportunity to kind of egg him on and and get back at him one last time. Yeah. Even, even at her like lowest points, like she still is like trying to be proactive in some way to like, you know, like how can I still use, you know, this situation I'm in to my advantage in, in some way. And it's, you know, it's, it's just enough to, you know, kind of plant that seed and like, you know, that's kind of like why he has to go so overboard to like, kind of go into the mode where he's, you know, covering up all the things and, you know, uh, you know, like, because then now it's like, he's almost been challenged. Like, Oh, you really think you're going to get away with this? And he's like, Oh wait, like watch this. Like, you know, I've seen these movies. I know how to, you know, clean up and, you know, cover all my tracks and all the loose ends. And, you know, but even that, you know, kind of goes, you know, helps her and it buys her time to, you know, eventually survive and still be able to make it out. 
I find the end of this, like the final few minutes, really upsetting. Like I find it a nod to Ferris Bueller, you know, even like the very end where he has to like turn off the, turn on the womb machine. Like it's when Ferris has to turn off the snoring machine. And it's like that race for Ferris to get home. And he's trying to like sneak back into his window. It's really upsetting because like ostensibly in a typical movie, like you're rooting for the kid to get away with it, but you're not rooting for Luke to get away with it here. Right. Like these last few minutes, like feel really gross to me. And it also just doesn't feel like enough of a comeuppance at the end of this movie. I mean, I I think again, like, from the truth or dare scene on, like we're not supposed to be rooting for this kid at all. So like, I think it is a, I think it's a fun inversion on it because again, I think uh, Ferris is a menace uh, and, uh, and I never root for that kid. So I can definitely uh, in the homage here, I'm like, so not rooting for Luke. So it's almost the opposite. It's like, you know, you're watching everything and it, and it does piss you off because mm-hmm. you're like, Oh, is he gonna, you know, like get away with it. And then, you know, kind of, you know, go on his kind of privileged life and, you know, continue on. And even though it kind of, you know, makes it, you know, look like he, you know, kind of gets everything in place and he does, but he does, he gets everything perfect except for double checking that Ashley is actually dead. You know, like, you know, he, he gets all the details, but he doesn't do that. So at the end of the day, he still loses, even if he, you know, uh, you know, you're watching this and you're and, and like, I think it's you know meant to be just like, oh, shit, like he really might get away with this. And then it's like, oh, no, thank goodness. You know, he didn't because Ashley was resourceful enough to survive and play dead, like, you know, play into, you know, his kind of cleanup drill. Well, I think it's a brilliant just take on you know using Ferris Bueller as the example but there's so many other films that kind of use this where it's like oh I've I've done something I shouldn't have got to clean up watch me go real quick like it's for what a kid missing a day of school calling out sick versus someone covering up murder and I I really love that they are approaching it the exact same way. Like Mm -hmm. they have very similar approaches and attitudes about it, very dismissive about, well, again, use Ferris Bueller as the example, like I'm not going to consider the ramifications of what fuckery I participated in has actually had on the people around me. Um, And that's very much what Luke is doing. He's like, yeah, People are dead. What is? Got to yeah. clean up. Make sure that pencil is on that doorknob. Just right. And if he's going to clean up, what better song to do it to than a Ramon song? Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Why not the Ramones? <laughs> I just. It's well done. I wish you he got more of a comeuppance at the end than Ashley just kind of flipping him the bird. Uh, and when she's getting wheeled out. Um, and I think I, maybe it's because, again, this movie caught it in October 2016 when it played the festival circuit. And I think like seeing it after this, maybe it hits a little bit differently with everything that's gone on in the past seven years and kind of bringing like that experience into it. But you definitely see a scenario where like, all right, Kid's parents are like super rich. They hire him the best attorney money can buy. He's only 13 years old. He gets like a few months in juvie. He gets a really sympathetic jury. 
and he's kind of like out scot-free do you know what i mean like he faces almost no repercussions for this whatsoever i mean in modern days it's obviously hard not to take the the cynical thought of that scenario of like all that playing out but I think, you know, yeah, of course we want to see like, you know, like a, a physical comeuppance like this kid never really he gets hit in the face once like, you know, like, of course, like it would have liked to him to get, you know, some more uh, her kind of comeuppance in that way. But I think getting the the psychological comeuppance of like her flipping over being like, hey, you didn't do everything perfect like you thought it's going to happen. And there is like, you know, I think without that, too also is going to help her case and like, you know, her telling exactly what happens because the likelihood that he truly, you know, slept through this entire incident, you right. know, and untouched, like if he really wanted to sell his plan, he would have broke his arm, uh, you know, uh, you know, and like involved him in the, in the crimes, but no, he's going to do the whole thing where he's like, Oh no, I just slept the whole time. So it's like, yeah, I think there, I think she has a better case due to the fact that he isn't hurt is going to help her in her case. I think he should have pulled like an Emma Roberts and scream. For yes. What you're saying. <laughs> that is exactly agree, what I'm saying. You know, that's a really good point. Cause it does seem a bit unlikely that the kid's going to sleep through, you know, the paint cans and the shotguns and everything going off. Like that kid is a deep fucking sleeper. Well, if that is the case. But I think to go back to what we talked about, just a, uh, a, is that line from Ashley, you know, referencing kind of a distance, a physical distance between mom and son, saying like, kind of playing off of this like idea that a parent knows the monster that they've created, mm-hmm. essentially. And while we don't get to see an actual, I think, full-fledged come up, and it's like we would like to see at what point is, you know, even the mom going to be like, I've got nothing. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I can't help you. I can't, I can't coddle you in this anymore because I'm spent and there's nothing left. And then yeah. he's really, I think, fucked because all he has is that all he has is kind of what his parents are able to give him and support him with at that point and so uh, having um rewatched the ending of uh, a better watch out uh i do enjoy like how it ends with her flipping the bird to luke as she's wheeled away in the ambulance but then i i think and this is like one of my other critiques of the movie is just the fact that they decided to include that mid credit bit at the mm-hmm. end, which I felt like deflated, like everything that that and the original ending had, because you're like, OK, she had to go through all this hell, but she was able to finally survive. She's out of the house. She'll be able to talk to the cops and hopefully he's going to finally pay for what he's done. And then almost immediately after like a couple of credits role in the film it cuts back to him asking his mom if they could go to the hospital to check on ashley because he's so worried about her so it's just um so even though she went through all this she's there's the potential that she might still have to deal with this uh psycho again while she's at her weakest so it's just um 
I felt like if they had taken that out, it would have been a much more satisfying ending. But he's a psycho, but he's able to succeed because essentially he's on his home turf. Um, True, true. And Hmm. you think that he's going to just be able to go in and go like bonkers in a hospital? Like, I so many horror films have us in hospitals that are so shockingly staffed by like three people who all seem to take breaks at the exact same time. Um, but Halloween I, too? Yeah. Um, but I don't think like he would be out of control. Like, again, I think this film really wants us to like wrestle with this idea of like, here's this monster, but he's a kid. He does not like he's out of his depth at a certain point and he will fuck around and he will find out at some point. It's never going to be soon enough, but But, he's going to find out. Yeah, there there, there were hopes for a sequel, but the only way that was going to happen was if it like made good money and they could have done it like pretty fast just because the characters were growing because he did kind of want to go for like a Halloween two vibe in in the in the hospital, uh, which I would have loved because I'm a big fan of H2. I think it's one of the more underrated entries of the franchise. Um, but at the same time, I, yeah, like it doesn't need it for, you know, this now that we know it's, you know, this is just a standalone thing. I mean, I don't know. We could still get a, a, a 10 years later one, uh, you know, with the, you know, adults, the, the adult versions, uh, could be fun. Who knows? I don't know. But, um, yeah, I think it's a fine ending though. I think it's still fun. Last thing I've got, I'll just mention the Oedipus complex really quick. The, Freudian concept that all boys want to sleep with their mothers and they will kill their father figures in order to do it. And I think you see that here. And I think what you see is Ashley has kind of replaced uh, Deandra as like the mother figure in Luke's life. And he actually lures in both Jeremy and Ricky to their deaths. Like he actually kills off like the male rivals and he invites them both like they don't just show up on on their own accord he invites them there in order to kill them off because he wants no rivals for uh his mother or in this case his surrogate mother's affection so i thought that was kind of a nice kind of little freudian touch there so that is better watch out as we kick off holiday horror month here at the pod and the pendulum jason thank you so much for joining us and why don't you tell listeners where they can find you on the socials, what, you know, if you're local to Massachusetts and want to become part of like the Boston Horror Meetup Society, what that is all about and where folks can find you. Sure. Um, so you can find me on both Twitter and Blue Sky. My handle is Beantown Horrors. Um, you can find Boston Horror Society on both me- the website Meetup and Facebook. Just type in Boston Horror Society into any search engine. You'll find us. Um, We've been around since 2015. Um, We've done, at this point, over 300 events. Um, We will be doing events into this year and into next year. Um, We check out movies. We go to book signings. We go to see theater productions. 
conventions, anything in the New England area that is spooky and can bring fans together. So that is my pitch. Um, if you uh, are interested, Mike, you're in you're in Massachusetts. You could join the Boston Horror Society. I should do that. I should do that. I think I will. I will definitely sign on board because I need to get out of my house more. Um, Nicole, what's going on with Bodies of Horror? Yeah, Bodies of Horror, uh, kicking right along, just had an episode with Jen Adams talking about Inside, which um, I really loved having that conversation um, and have an upcoming episode with Joe Lipsit, who is kind of the man behind the boards at Anatomy of the Screen, but also one of the co-hosts of Horror Queers um, talking about uh, St. Maud, which is um, another that, black comedy. Yeah, which was so much fun to uh, have a conversation with him about and also coming up just a little further down the pike might have an episode with the one and only Devon which I'm slightly losing my mind over because I'm so excited to talk about the film I think that we've landed on oh get hyped guys get hyped it's gonna get real serious oh it is it is amazing. So yeah, um, you can find me on socials, um, on Twixt. I am uh, Bodies Horror um, on Instagram, which I I've come to appreciate a little bit more in recent days. <laughs> uh, Bodies of Horror podcast, and on Blue Sky Blue Ski as uh, Bodies of Horror. Excellent, Devon. How about yourself? Yeah, you guys can find me, as always, on the Spectre Cinema Club. It's the podcast I host with my buddy Gary McDowell covering various subgenres. Um, we are uh, finishing up our uh, month of Hitchcock for November. Um, it was a nice, like, kind of spooky season wind down. Uh, and then going into December, we're going to be uh, possessed by the Christmas spirit or some other spirit because uh, we're going to be doing possession movies. Uh, so very excited for that. And uh, and if you, you saw uh, our Jones and for some Thanksgiving vibes, uh, we just dropped a full commentary on uh, the Thanksgiving classic Blood Rage uh, for free on our main feed as a, a, a little tease for some Patreon stuff. So uh, if, you, if you're still in the mood for cranberry sauce, we got we got plenty of it for you. So uh, you can find me on uh, all social medias at underscore daddy disco and specter cinema club new episodes every tuesday on social media at specter cinema excellent and folks you can find us at pod and pendulum on twitter pod and pendulum over on blue ski uh go ahead and and rate review and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts if you Leave us a five-star review and a few kind words. It goes a long way to listeners, new listeners finding us, and it's greatly appreciated. Uh, if you want to help the show even more, consider becoming a patron today by going to patreon.com slash pod on the pendulum. We have tiers as low as $2. Uh, Ariel and I just posted a Sharknado commentary that is not really a commentary you don't really need to watch the movie. It's really commentary. It's really Ariel and I just shooting the shit. Well, she says things like, I like garbage. And she's right. Uh, and we'll also be covering Thanksgiving for the month of November. Uh, so we're excited for that. Uh, for the rest of the month, we'll be covering 
holiday horror movies and then wrapping the year up with a non-horror movie with Muppet Christmas Carol. Uh, we are going to be kicking off 2024 with a look back on our top 10 horror movies of 2023. And then the first franchise we'll be covering will be the Universal Frankenstein films. Brian and I are already like comparing notes. Um, I'm already doing my outlines for the first couple movies. So those will be pretty epic really excited to dive into like universal horror for the first time after a couple hundred episodes like that is like the very definition of comfort horror to me so we're doing uh james wales frankenstein all the way through like abbott and costello v frankenstein really excited for that those should be great episodes so that's it listeners thank you so much for listening to better watch out we'll be back next week with another Uh, holiday pick and until then thanks for listening